Okay, everybody, welcome to the session of the week. I know this is the one you've been greatly anticipating, and I'm, I'm thrilled you're here. I, I don't normally do this, but th it is going to be a, a lot more engaging and better if we're, if we're in somewhat of a closer proximity. So would you mind, if you're in the back half, just go ahead and get it over with. Let's, let's all come up to the front. No, you guys stay right there. You guys, you guys stay right there. Yeah, while you're, while you're doing that, I got here and we got our programs and I, I asked my wife, Mary, I said, Mary, what room am I in? And she said, you're in Elkins Theater. And I said, what? <laughs> I said, why am I in Elkins Theater? And then I said, what, what time am I at? And then she said, it's Friday at 2 o'clock. I'm like, oh, you're kidding. Friday at 2 o'clock. So uh, yesterday, my, my wife and I went hiking. We came across this particular part of the trail. What's, what teaching of Jesus does this remind you of? The wide and the narrow road. Yes, very, very uh, just descriptive. It's, it's, it's right there. And in scripture, the narrow road has a lot of metaphors for it. You've got uh, the remnant. You've got the saints when, and the sheep and the goat story. This is obviously the sheep. Well, I was actually thinking this morning that whoever shows up Friday at 2 o'clock is definitely on the narrow path. So give yourself a pat on the back <laughs> and say, I am extra saved today. <laughs> Go ahead and say that, I am extra saved. <laughs> terrible, terrible theology. No, we're, I am glad you're here. I, I, I'm going to let one of uh, my good friends and great theologian, George Costanza, um, he's going to introduce our theme today. It was supposed to be a lot more work. Yeah, when the season starts. Right now I sit around pretending that I'm busy. How do you pull that off? I always look annoyed. <laughs> yeah, when you look annoyed all the time, people think that you're busy. <laughs> think about it. <laughs> yeah, you do. Looks he looks very busy. Yeah. Like Mr. Wilhelm gave me one of those little stress dolls. <laughs> all right. Back to work. We just got the final budget numbers. We went over budget on some of the items, but I don't think there's going to be a problem. I'll let you get back to work, George. taking work a little too seriously. Well, I've got a lot to do. <laughs> so I love that clip because as the writers of this show are trying to articulate uh, what it's like to be busy, they, they could have uh, pictured that in a lot of different ways. They could have shown people being really productive. Uh, they could have shown people being very successful, making a lot of money. But they chose to, to, to portray George as being really, really frustrated as the primary symptom of being busy. It's pretty telling. Uh, question or two for you. First question is this. When you look at other people, what are some things that tell you that they're definitely busy? What are some of the telltale signs? How do you know when someone's busy? 
they're rushed, they're complaining, that's a good one, constantly on their phone, what were you going to say? Yes. Yeah, facial expressions, they're, they're definitely not pleasant and, and happy. What, what else about body language? Show me with, show me with your bodies, what, what do busy people look like? They can be frustrated, yeah. Yeah, fidgety, they can't sit still. Okay, let me ask you this. What about you? How do you know when you are pretty busy? Your, your mind just goes crazy. What about you in the back? Okay, <laughs> so you're pretty absent-minded, okay? Go ahead. Okay, you get a little more grumpy. When yes, it's because your mind is in a different place. You're not focusing on what's right in front of you. What were you going to say? That's what you'll say? Are you done yet? Come on, let's go. Yeah. Have you ever noticed that uh, in our culture we're proud of being busy? It's become a badge of honor, like the Olympics. We we brag about how busy we are in comparison to other people. And I say that as if I'm not part of it. I am part of it. I, just this past week, on Sunday, I live in Oklahoma. My name is Phil Brookman, by the way. I'm a preacher in Oklahoma. And we have a uh, big race every year called the Memorial Marathon, which we, it's in commem commemoration of the bombing that happened in Oklahoma City in 1995. And so this year, sometimes I'll, I'll do the full marathon, sometimes I'll do the halves, and this year I was doing the relay, so I, I have the first six miles of, of that race. Well, I've never tried this before, but I attempted to run those six miles and then get back by 8 o'clock to preach at first service, then preach at second service, and then my small group went to a church camp that afternoon to build a gaga pit, which is this game that kids play, as a service project. So it was a, it was a, long, it was a long day. Well, I got to the end of the day, and... I felt proud of myself because of all the things that I had done. Not, in the, not really a good pride. It was like, look at me. I've done all these things. I cannot wait to tell other people. Uh, we're proud of being busy. That's just the way our culture works. But the, the question would be, is it healthy? So uh, here's an a, a odd picture. This is a practice that started in China and this is actually a depiction of these people doing it in Iraq. But this ritual is the, when a woman is pregnant and she wants to have an easy delivery, she will jump on the back of her fiancé and he will walk across burning coals. And the ritual, the history of this says that she will have an easy childbirth. So lots of people who abide by this ritual will do this. Now, what... What is your reaction to that ritual? Just a few of you throw out comments. What do you, what do you think about that? It's crazy. Go ahead. Maybe like acupuncture. It's crazy. Maybe acupuncture. Anything else? What's your initial reaction to that? I illogical. What if they both fall? <laughs> yeah. Was there a hand in the back? Go ahead. Emergency C-section, yeah. We look at this and think, what are you thinking? Like, get an epidural if you want to have an easy delivery. Like, why, why would anybody do this? Well, 
The reason we react that way is because we're unfamiliar with this ritual. What is oblivious to an insider is obvious to an outsider. So because we are outsiders, we can look at that ritual and say, you are crazy. That is a terrible idea. But what happens, and you know this, is that when you get used to a way of life, when you get used to certain practices, they become so normal that you forget whether or not they are actually healthy. You just, you just do them. Well, well, busyness is one of those things that just because it's normal to us does not mean that it is healthy for us. So since the year 1970, the average hours worked in the United States of America has gone up uh, 200 hours per year. So slowly since 1970. So the effect of that is that we're just used to working all the time. We're used to going all the time. And so therefore, we don't necessarily realize how unhealthy that it really is. However, when you look at busyness globally, the United States of America is quite the outlier. A uh, few, few stats. Uh, one is this from the International Labor Organization. Americans work 137 more hours per year than, than Japanese workers, 260 more hours per year than British workers, and 499 more hours per year than French workers. So we work a lot. We're used to it. Here's another interesting graph. So this shows federally mandated holiday leave by country. So you've got all these countries, and the, the, the dark blue is paid vacation, the light blue is paid holidays, federally mandated. And if you notice, the United States of America is over here. We don't have any as far as federally mandated. Now, obviously, most people have vacation time and they have leave time, but it's not federally mandated from our government. So this means that we are an outlier. So what we need to do then is listen to other voices. What, what does the rest of the world, how do they comment on our culture? So here's an interesting one. If you were to travel to the country of Uganda, they would refer to Americans as manzungu. Everybody say that, manzungu. So if a, if a person from the U.S. goes over, that's what they are going to refer to you as. When you literally translate this into their language, it actually means one who spins around in the same spot. That's what they call us. That's what they think about us and our culture. Just like a dog chasing its tail, they view us as the people that are just going and going and going and going and going, and not a whole lot gets done. Or, or here's another example. So in China, in the Chinese language, they don't have characters that represent uh, sounds. Instead, they have characters in their alphabet, alphabet that represent ideas or images. So this is the Chinese word for busy, and it's a combination of two Chinese characters, heart and killing. So isn't that interesting? In China, they put these two words together, heart and killing, and that's their word for busyness. So what this means is that the rest of the world looks at the United States of America and our culture, and they say, what are you guys doing? They look at us the way that we initially reacted to the guy walking across hot coals carrying his pregnant wife. We look at that and think, what are you thinking? Well, much of the world looks at us and, and says the exact same thing. What in the world are you thinking? This is crazy. But you know this. You, you don't have to... You don't have to re go talk to people across the world to know 
the unhealthy side effects to busyness. Uh, my guess is some of you, you know what it feels like to be on vacation, but you just keep checking your email because you think that something might happen, and you find yourself, you can't really break away. You know how that feels. Uh, some of you know how it feels to wake up one day and your daughter or your granddaughter is now 16, 17, and you realize that you don't really have a relationship with her because you've just been so busy. Like, it really does affect us pretty deeply. I think that God has a word for us about our busyness. I want to give you two broad ways that, that you can counter our culture of busyness. One would be the practice of Sabbath, and two would be the power of no. And so I'm going to spend a good chunk of time on each one of these practices. After we uh, talk about Sabbath, I'm going to pause, and if you have a comment or a question, uh, we can talk about it for just, just a little bit. But I want to start with, with the practice of Sabbath. If you went home to your, your church and you asked this first question here, do you need deep rest? My guess is you would get a lot of people saying, yeah, tired. I need deep rest. I need to go to the beach for a few days. I need deep soul rest. If you followed up with this second question, should we practice Sabbath? You'd probably get a lot of, no, we don't have to do that anymore. That, that was an Old Testament thing. It's not really a good practice for us today. And so isn't that interesting that there's a tension already? We know we need rest, and yet we assume that Sabbath is not for us. The, the great irony of Sabbath is that it is actually very in demand. We as a culture, we as a people need it, but it's also very much out of style, like the disco ball and bell bottoms and top hats, uh, it's just gone out of style. It's great for somebody else, but it's not great for me. My opinion is that if Sabbath day were to actually make a revival in our culture, I, I am more convinced that, than ever that Jesus would be leading the charge on this one. I, 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 have, I have come to the conclusion that most of my life I've misread the Sabbath passages in the New Testament, really out of an excuse on my own part because I don't want to stop. And there's a lot, a lot of things to get done. But I want to I I try to argue and make the case for why I think that Jesus would actually uh, be leading the parade if there was a revival of Sabbath day. So let's get into a few passages here. Mark 2, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain the Pharisee said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is even Lord of the Sabbath. That is one of six uh, Sabbath controversy stories that we have in the Gospels, and they're all fairly similar. And the traditional interpretation of the Sabbath controversy stories is this. this Jesus, uh, Jesus abolished the Sabbath day. So the traditional interpretation says that very much like the temple, uh, very much like animal sacrifice, it was needed at one point, but Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath day, and therefore we no longer need to practice that. I'm not so sure if that interpretation is correct. I want to give you a few reasons why I think we should rethink that interpretation. Here's the first reason. 
Jesus actually endorsed the Sabbath. Uh, let, let me explain. He, he says, he has this phrase, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So meaning that the Son of Man has authority over the Sabbath. But here's a question for you. Since when does being Lord of something mean that you are anti that thing? So for example, you've got all these other passages in the Bible that describe God as being Lord of something. He's Lord of all the earth in Psalm 97. He's Lord of kings. He's Lord of heaven. He's Lord of the harvest. Would you ever read any of these verses and say, well, well, yes, Jesus is Lord of the harvest, but that means that Jesus is anti-harvest. Of course you wouldn't say that. Being Lord of something doesn't mean you're against that thing. Being Lord of something simply means that you have authority over whatever that thing is. You might, uh, just like a lawyer who works his way up in a law firm and eventually becomes partner of that law firm, that doesn't mean he is now against all the, all the things about law. It, it simply means he's, he's fully invested in that law firm. So when Jesus says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, he's fully invested in the Sabbath day. Now, here, here's another uh, example of, of why I think Jesus endorsed Sabbath. Matthew 24. It's one of those strange apocalyptic texts where you don't really know what he's talking about. Most scholars think he's actually talking about the fall of Jerusalem, which would happen 37 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. And so Jesus is predicting what people will do at that time. And he says, pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. And so what Jesus is assuming is he's assuming that 37 years after he is back in heaven, his followers will still be observing Sabbath day. And at that point, he knows they will not be observing Sabbath as Jews only. They will be observing Sabbath as Christians. So even Jesus, as he's projecting into the future, Jesus Christ assumes that people will still be practicing Sabbath. Here's one more example. Luke 4, 16. On the Sabbath day, Jesus went into the synagogue as was his custom. It's right there in the text. Jesus practiced Sabbath. So he went into the synagogue. He had a ritual. He had a routine in which he would honor Sabbath day. Here's another reason that, that I think that, that Sabbath should make a revival. It's not only because Jesus endorsed it, his followers practiced it. So first of all, the, the ladies that went to prepare the spices for Jesus' tomb, if anybody had the right to say, you know what, we used to practice Sabbath, but now we're going to take a break because Jesus died and he rose again and he didn't really practice it, so we're not going to practice it either, either, it would have been those ladies. But Luke 23 tells us they went home prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. So even in the middle of the gospel story, this is between Friday and Sunday, these women who had been with Jesus for three years, they had learned his rhythm of life. And even in the middle of the gospel story, they're still practicing Sabbath day. A few years later, Paul, Acts chapter 16, when he goes and meets Lydia, this, this happened because Paul was still observing Sabbath. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. So the Apostle Paul is still practicing Sabbath even after Jesus is gone. So Jesus actually endorsed Sabbath. He practiced it. And his followers practiced it. But here, here's another reason why I think Sabbath should make a comeback. It was a gift. God gifted Sabbath to his people. 
So you've, you've got a line here from uh, Mark 2. The Sabbath was made for man. In other words, God made it. He created it. He designed it specifically for his people. You see, at the beginning of time, when you go back to Genesis, God rested on the seventh day. And then when the Ten Commandments come around, we find that the Sabbath day is a practice of, of creation. Well, one of the reasons that God gives us the gift of Sabbath is because of human limitation. The most common thing that connects all people is limitation. All people throughout the world have to go to sleep at night because we have limitation. We're not immortal. We're not God. We have limitation. God knew that, and so he created the Sabbath day in order to take care of us. He knew we would need rest. He knew we would need to stop, and so he gave us this gift called Sabbath. I also think God knew that we would, we would turn the gift of work into the sin of workaholism, and so he gave us this gift. It was a gift from God so that we could recognize our limits. God also gave us this gift as a rehearsal of the future. So this is a fascinating text from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So as the author of Hebrews is describing heaven, he's describing the resurrection, the metaphor he picks, he could have had a thousand metaphors to choose from, and he picks Sabbath day. He says at the end of the time, at end of time this is where we're going. We're going to a point in history where God's going to make everything right, and we're going to have this eternal rest, this eternal Sabbath day with God. So perhaps the most prolific writer about Sabbath day is, is a guy named Abraham Herschel. He's a Jew, and he has a lot of, of, of material written about Sabbath. But here's one of his best quotes. He says, Unless one learns how to relish the taste of Sabbath while still in this world, unless one is initiated into the appreciation of eternal life, one will be unable to enjoy the taste of eternity in the world to come. The essence of the world to come is Sabbath eternal, and the seventh day in time is an example of eternity. So what he's getting at is that if that's where we're going, why wouldn't we be practicing that right now? Like if you practice Sabbath day on earth, that will actually increase your appetite for heaven. But if you don't practice Sabbath day on earth, then you're not necessarily going to want to go to heaven because heaven is going to be one eternal Sabbath day. So I've done, I love weddings, done lots of weddings. And one of, one of the things I love about weddings is usually interesting things happen. We could probably talk for quite a while. I'm sure you guys have lots of stories about weddings you attended or, or done. So a few years ago, I had one of the more memorable experiences of a wedding. I live uh, in a suburb of Oklahoma City, and about an hour and a half southwest, there is a wildlife refuge with lots of uh, mountains and free-range bison and longhorn. And this couple wanted to get married down at, at this wildlife refuge. It's called the Wichita Mountains. So I said, sure, I've been there many times. I'd love to do that wedding. Well, as the date got closer, they, they decided not to do a rehearsal. I said, okay, that's, that's fine if that's what you guys want to do. And they said, we're just not going to do a rehearsal. Just meet us at, at 2 o'clock on Saturday at, at the Wichita Mountains. I said, you bet, I'll be there. I leave my house with, in plenty of time to get there about an hour early. Well, I, I forgot two things on the way down there. Number one, I had forgot that the Wichita Mountain uh, 
area is a 700 square foot area. And secondly, I had forgot that cell phones don't work once you get there. So I roll up and I'm just driving around in all these roads like, where is this wedding? Like, they had sent these specific locations to all the guests and they had failed to send that specific location to the preacher. And so I'm just driving my car around. I don't, I don't have a clue. I just keep seeing buffalo everywhere and there's no wedding. And I'm looking at the clock on my car and my anxiety is just starting to rise. The, the minutes are ticking by. Wedding starts at 2 o'clock, you know, 1 1.30, 1.40, 1.45, 1.50. And I'm thinking, we haven't even rehearsed the wedding. I'm doing the wedding and I'm not, I'm not even there. Finally, 2 o'clock hits. I'm like, well, I'm still not there. I'm supposed to be doing the wedding. At 2.10, I see a guest that's late driving down the road I'm in. So I flag him down, jump in his car. And so we show up 15 minutes late to the wedding that I am supposed to be performing. I get out of the car. The first person to greet me is the mother of the bride. And she's just got sweat pouring off her face. <laughs> she's angry. <laughs> she is stressed out. And she just starts firing questions at me. Well, where, where are the groomsmen supposed to stand? And where are the, where's the flower girl supposed to come from? And you know, where, I've got this quartet of, of musicians. Where are they supposed to stand? And I'm like, I, I have no idea. Like, we, this is why you do a rehearsal. <laughs> this is why you do it. Everybody's stressed out. No one knows what to do. So I just start faking like I know what I'm doing. And I start calling shots. You go over here. You come sit down here. And I'm trying to call the shots. Then someone comes up to me and says, Phil, i got to tell you something. Technically, weddings aren't allowed at the Wichita Mountains. And I said, well, how did they get this booked? And they said, well, we booked it as a family reunion. And someone just showed up at the wildlife office, one of our guests who was in a nice suit. And they told the wildlife people, hey, I'm here for the wedding. And the wildlife people said, there's not supposed to be weddings here. And so we're just telling you this, Phil, because we think that the authorities are on their way to shut it down. So I'm like, let's go. <laughs> so we, I, it was the fastest wedding I ever did. Just, just cut half the notes out. We did the I do's. Luckily, the, the authorities did not show up, and they got married. Moral of the story, this is why you have rehearsals. <laughs> a wedding is an important enough event to have a rehearsal. Do you think that heaven is an important enough event to have a rehearsal? It is. And when God gifted us Sabbath, it was a rehearsal of eternity. And so in many ways, we are slapping eternity in the face by neglecting to practice this gift that God made for us. God made Sabbath for us. Think about if you walk to the door, your front door here in a few days when you're, when you're back home, and there's a gift for you from one of your best friends. And you read the card, and it says, inside is something I got for you.